this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with Scott Lehman of the University of Colorado here in Boulder. Dr. Lehman and his team developed a novel technique to identify the carbon dioxide released solely by burning of fossil fuels, thereby allowing its exact calibration in the global carbon budget. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A recent study of patients in China published an association between the A blood type and SARS-CoV-2 infection. The researchers compared the blood type of COVID-19 patients with blood types in the general population. But can this finding be generalized to other populations, more specifically those of us in the U.S.? Medical researchers working in the New York Presbyterian Hospital System assessed the association between ABO blood type and SARS-CoV-2 infection status, intubation, and death. They looked at 1,559 individuals, all of whom were tested for SARS-CoV-2, and of these, 682 were COVID-positive. They found a higher proportion of blood group A and a lower proportion of blood group O among COVID-positive patients compared to COVID-negative patients. Furthermore, the effect of blood type was independent of other risk factors such as age, sex, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and chronic cardiovascular and lung disorders. When they combined their data from the New York study with the Chinese data, they found that A and B blood groups together were overrepresented among the COVID-19 population, that is people infected with COVID-19, while people with blood type O were less common compared to the general population. The researchers said that their study was too preliminary to conclude that blood type has any role in disease severity. What should you think after hearing these results? Well, first, don't panic if you have blood type A. Together, people that are A positive and A negative, those are two subtypes, make up only about 30% of the U.S. population. And remember the study, which was a preprint released last week in the online journal MedRxIV, only looked for an association between blood type and infection, not for outcome. That said, if you do have one of those blood types and you do have other risk factors, then you may want to take greater precautions. One thing you don't need to do, however, is to increase your intake of vitamin D. While vitamin D is important for bone and muscle health, it has not been shown to help suppress or prevent COVID-19 infection. Earlier studies have led to the hypothesis that vitamin D may have a role in the body's immune system, immune system's response to respiratory viruses that generated the idea that maybe COVID-19 could be prevented or minimized by taking this vitamin. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the UK recently reviewed five observational studies looking at this exact question. And they failed to find any evidence supporting the use of vitamin D supplements to reduce the risk or severity of COVID-19. 
However, the chief nutritionist for the British Public Health Service did comment that with many people spending more time indoors, particularly the more vulnerable groups, there is a risk that some people may not be getting all the vitamin D they need from sunlight. It's For most people, it's uh, possible to get most of your vitamin D requirement from sunlight, at least during the warmer months of the year. So people in risk groups that spend a lot of time indoors now may consider taking a daily supplement of, say, 10 micrograms of vitamin D to help protect their bone and muscle health. This study was released last week on the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence website. Scott Lehman is a research scientist at CU's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and director of CU's Radiocarbon Lab. He's an expert on the role of the world's oceans in determining past and projected climate change and atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. Today we talk about his recent publication describing a long-term effort by him and his collaborators at NOAA to develop a method allowing them to identify the amount of CO2 released from burning fossil fuels. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, glad to be here. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've been working together with my colleagues across the street at, at NOAA, uh, NOAA's uh, Global Monitoring Lab, uh, and we have been trying uh, uh, to develop a method uh, to quantify emissions from uh, fossil fuel combustion and uh, cement manufacture. Together, we can think of those is the primary anthropogenic emissions of CO2 uh, based entirely on uh, atmospheric observations. Uh, and just a week ago, we published a paper, it was an important milestone for us, which we, we, we made our first estimates using these, these methods that we've been developing for some years. Uh, we, we do this, uh, for comparison to other estimates of, of uh, anthropogenic CO2 emissions, mainly uh, coming from economic statistics on uh, fossil fuel use and the uh, combustion efficiency of various uh, uh, processes. Uh, those have been the, the primary uh, means by which uh, governments uh, and uh, uh, different countries have uh, estimated both national and global fossil fuel emissions. That, that's correct. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's the atmospheric CO2 we're, we're concerned about. So uh, uh, it would be nice to use a direct a method that is based directly on what we can observe in the atmosphere. Your listeners probably know that NOAA and, uh, and also Scripps have been uh, monitoring the CO2 levels in the atmosphere for a long time. NOAA has built out a large array of, of observations. Uh, in the mid-2000s, they expanded that uh, observing network in the United States, uh, primarily with the aim of looking at the balance 
of uh, carbon uptake and release uh, by the biosphere in North America. Uh, they approached me around that time uh, to see if I could help them with a, a method uh, for isolating the CO, the CO2 from anthropogenic activities such as fossil fuel combustion and cement manufacture. And the, 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 what we, we took advantage of is the actually fairly simple fact that, that um, the atmosphere itself and the biosphere that exchanges with the atmosphere has, has relatively high levels of an isotope of carbon called radiocarbon. That's the heavy isotope of carbon. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, radiocarbon being itself radioactive uh, uh, means that materials that uh, form fossil fuels uh, during a uh, long burial uh, in the interior of the earth lose all their radiocarbon to, to uh, radioactive decay. Uh, so when we burn those, we dig those materials up and we burn them, we emit CO2 that carries that C14 free isotopic signature in the CO2. And so those emissions show up in the atmosphere as uh, depletions or lower values uh, in, uh, in observed CO2. So we can make those measurements uh, in, in the primary CO2 samples collected by uh, NOAA, and we can begin to map the distribution of fossil fuel emissions based on the absence, the relative absence of C14 in that CO2. Uh, then we need to take the next step, which is just to, to use a, an atmospheric model. Uh, sure. Well, it's the absence relative to some, some other background value. So, so basically, uh, we're just looking for lower places where the values are lower uh, than they are elsewhere. And so where the values are lower is are areas where, where there is more fossil fuel derived CO2. That's correct. And fossil fuels are, are so old, they're many millions of years old, whereas the half-life of C14 is 5,700 years. So you go back, oh, uh, you know, 10 half-lives and it's all gone. So, uh, so fossil fuel derived CO2 has, has no C14 remaining. That's correct. So uh, the materials used to, to uh, uh, produce cement are also uh, ancient materials, uh, geologic materials that are devoid of C14. As, as some of your listeners may know, the primary ingredient in cement is lime. So you take uh, limestone, which is calcium carbonate, you cook it uh, to release uh, CO2 and produce uh, calcium oxide. Yes, it's, that's correct. It's on the order of about 10% of the total emission. 
that's in, that includes the energy required to produce cement. We do we do uh, use a global array of samples, although much most of our sampling occurs in the United States uh, for reasons I mentioned earlier. The original focus of that uh, observing network was to look at the carbon balance, the, the uh, biospheric carbon balance over over North America. But uh, um, we um, we focus initially on determining emissions for the United States and uh, various uh, regions of the U.S., both nationally and monthly. Well, that's what our initial results sh show us. So we're, what we're finding, we, we did this, the first year we had enough uh, observations to make a reliable estimate was 2010. So we, we did this. Our publication a week or two ago was on emissions in 2010. We compared our findings to what is uh, a number, the, the estimates from a number of different so-called emissions inventories. And we find our, our levels are you know, five to 10% higher than in the other inventories. There's one important exception to that that I'll get back to momentarily, but those inventories also include the estimates from the US EPA, which are the, the estimates of record for the US uh, delivered to the UN framework uh, convention on climate change. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, potentially, if, if our findings hold up, uh, this is a potentially very important um, revision to the uh, US emission uh, estimate. I should say that, that for a, we have a prior expectation that um, for a perfectly performing atmospheric system, uh, we we might expect to find uh, th that is by the way a system without uh, biases, either up or down. Uh, we might expect to find emissions estimates that are larger than inventories, and that's simply due to the innate difficulty of accounting for all possible sources of emission using economic statistics. You can make an analogy to what goes on during an annual or a, a, a decadal census count. You're much more likely to get a small undercount than you are to get a, an overcount. Yeah, so so we we use uh, a uh, a measurement method called accelerator mass spectrometry. This allows us to count the C14 atoms in a air sample of CO2 directly. We don't have to wait for them to decay. <laughs> uh, that provides for a much greater level of sensitivity and what and allowed us to make highly precise measurements in the relatively small samples provided to us from the uh, the NOAA's global uh, network. Um, so those samples put in lay terms, they, they contain something like uh, 
a half a milligram of carbon from CO2. And we can provide, we can, we can make a very uh, precise C14 measurement in that amount of carbon. And so, uh, you know, as I say, by 2010, we had made enough of these measurements uh, in a single year uh, in order to, uh, we think, come up with a robust estimate of the emissions. Well, uh, so we, you know, we've using extramural grants and support from within uh, NOAA's global, global monitoring lab, we have been able to uh, prepare samples for uh, accelerator measurement elsewhere, uh, principally at the University of California, Irvine. So we send them a, a thousand, fifteen hundred samples a year. Um, what you're referring to is the fact that the National Academy in 2010 had recommended that we increase our measurement capacity by a factor of five to 10. And to do that, we need our own instrument. Uh, and uh, NOAA had in its uh, presidential budget request for many years, the acquisition and operation of, of an instrument uh, on the CU campus adjacent to my uh, present lab uh, for this purpose would be entirely dedicated to emissions verification work for NOAA and providing a US uh, greenhouse gas emissions estimation system that provided information about emissions on a, on a monthly basis uh, and at the scale of both the whole country and, and several large states. So this could be very useful in guiding uh, emissions mitigation efforts into the future. Well, I think, um, you know, I think the first thing to know is whether intended, to cut, intended cuts are in fact occurring. Uh, so that's, that's sort of, sort of the simple uh, black and white of it. Uh, we can, uh, we can uh, with an expanded network and expanded measurement capability, we can determine emissions at, at, the stale, at, the, at the scale of a large state, such as California. Uh, now, unlike bottom-up accounting methods, we cannot attribute uh, these emissions to individual economic sectors. We can't distinguish between cement manufacture uh, and um, uh, fossil fuel CO2 emissions from the, from the transportation sector or the residential sector or the industrial sector. To do that, you need um, uh, other, you know, you need complementary bottom-up in, uh, information. As it happens, the one exception to our the, the our, our overall finding that I mentioned earlier was agreement with something called the Vulcan Emissions Inventory, which is quite different than other uh, bottom-up accounting tools. It's very highly resolved. It's in both space and time hourly. Um, kilometer one by one kilometer resolution uh, in space, and it it, it ingests information from tra the traffic cycle, from pollution monitoring, and uh, and so it goes well beyond the usual fossil fuel and, and economic statistics. And we found in our uh, 
uh, recent study, uh, astonishing agreement with, with that uh, particular product. And so many of us believe that the, the very best way forward is to, is to combine the two approaches, the so-called Vulcan approach and our atmospheric uh, approach, which provides an integral constraint on the total emissions at various scales. Well, so this is something that uh, me and my colleagues at uh, NOAA GML are involved in. A lot of people are working on this. Um, I think, you know, the, the, NOAA has the capacity to provide the most direct uh, measures of uh, CO2 variability. And, uh, you know, the challenge is separating um, you know, small changes in, in ambient CO2 levels arising from reductions in fossil fuel use from those occurring due to, you know, the uh, spring bloom, so to speak, and, and the uptake by the biosphere. My method, C14, allows us to do that very explicitly. So while it's something that, we, you know, a product we can't deliver immediately, uh, we're uh, NOAA is flying uh, campaigns now, principally over the uh, East Coast, large urban areas of the East Coast, and we're receiving samples for C14 measurement. You know, within the space of a half a year, we should be able to say something uh, quite definitive about uh, emissions. It, certainly, it is a test bed for our our, uh, our uh, emissions detection system. Well, well, so first of all, we, are, we have funding uh, currently to extend our observations from emissions estimates from 2010 out through the full decade of the uh, 2010 through 2019. So, uh, and the goal there is, is uh, several fold. Firstly, to see whether some of the differences between what we see in the atmosphere and what uh, various accounting methods are showing are upheld over time. Uh, we can provide a, a, an absolutely independent estimate of the emissions trends since 2010. Uh, according to the EPA, that we should have, uh, we should expect to see something like uh, a decline on the order of 10% since that time. Um, and uh, we also. One thing I haven't talked about is the fact that our method relies on the use of an atmospheric model of mixing and winds in order to trace the observations back, atmospheric observations back to sources on the ground and we'll implement additional uh, atmospheric models which helps us to uh, uh, improve estimates of the uncertainties in our estimates. Yes, that's correct. But and I, I think one of the things that we're you know really focused on is is a, is a clear understanding of the uncertainties of, in our in our estimates. That's something that's generally not available from bottom up estimates. To their credit, the U.S. EPA does provide an uncertainty estimate on their annual total, and um, you know just like we would expect from an 
a census count, the upside uncertainty is, is two and a half times larger than the downside uncertainty. Um, but uh, those uncertainties are intrinsically difficult to quantify. In our method, the, the um, uncertainties have underlying physical constraints. And so they are, um, they, they are subject to a rigorous uh, treatment and analysis. <laughs> Pleased to be here. Thanks so much. That was Scott Lehman discussing his team's groundbreaking development of methodology that identifies the amount of carbon released from fossil fuel burning. He described how this recent work on U.S. CO2 emissions connects with the need for reliable and transparent reporting to the U.N. on global carbon release. For more information, I'll link to his website and their recent paper in Science describing this work in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and I produce this week's show, which is engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.